So today, Julia is here with us, Hello. and Julia is a longtime friend of mine. Um, we actually met, what is it, six years ago? Should be. At least. That's pretty crazy. Um, and somehow we ended up on the same side of the Atlantic together, which is very exciting. I'm pretty sure you copied me. I think I did copy you. I think I did. Yeah. So to be honest, Julia is two years older than me, and everything she's done <laughs> since I met her. You've done I, better. Mm, maybe just two years later. So <laughs> updated. Uh, we are both pursuing masters in linguistics, myself at Cambridge and you at Oxford, the other school, as they say, Ew. Ew. who even cares? Pretty much that I have a theory that they're secretly just the same school. <laughs> that maybe the tension is just like for fun or something like that. Yeah, and all the atoms have just been like copied and transferred. 100%. I agree. <laughs> Everyone's a lizard. <laughs> but her research is about 4,000 times cooler than my own, which is why we brought her on this show, so that she can talk about it. And I'm very, very excited that you're here. Thanks for having me. So Julia's research uh, is about 4,000 times cooler than that of my own. And she happens to be working on a very interesting language. Uh, the name of which is? Well, it has a lot of names. Can I just give you all of them? Yeah, please do. Okay, here we go. So I grew up learning that this language was called Ladino, which is correct, also potentially incorrect. Debatable, okay. we'll see. Other names include Judeo-Spanish, if you're speaking English, Judeo-Espanol, if you're speaking Spanish, um, Muestro-Espanol, which translates to our Spanish. So it's the idea that it's a dialect of Spanish or a variety of Spanish spoken by a specific community. Okay. Um, and Judesmo is another one that generally refers to um, varieties spoken in the former Ottoman Empire. I'll get to that in a second. Cool. Um, and then another variety, um, which is a bit different from the one I work on, is called Heketia which comes from the Arabic root heki or to tell. So all of these are varieties of Spanish spoken by Sephardic Jews who were expelled from Spain in 1492, which was a particularly bad year in the history of the world, looking at you, Spain. Um, but what happened then is that after the marriage of um, Ferdinand and Isabella and the like reconquest, as they called it, of the Iberian Peninsula as a Catholic nation, which of course they combined with colonialism elsewhere, they expelled Muslims and Jews um, or required them to convert to Catholicism. Um, some Jews do convert, others pretend to convert and stay in the peninsula, but about 150,000 leave. Um, Muslims, of course, had to go through the same thing. So the Jews go in waves to many different places, kind of loosely around the Mediterranean. Um, one wave goes down to Morocco, where they continue speaking Spanish, and then it gets mixed with um, Moroccan Arabic, hence why it's called Heketia, um, which co comes from the Arabic word. And then the plurality, so about 100,000 100, Jews um, go to the Ottoman Empire. What was the Ottoman Empire? Um, actually, because they were invited specifically by the Sultan Bayezid II, um, who explicitly invited Jews to come, promised them a level of security um, and employment and participation in the empire's sort of workings. Um, spoiler, that's the variety I work on. And then some other Jews end up going to um, areas in Western Europe, um, like Amsterdam in particular, some to what is now England. Um, 
The variety I work on is goes by the name of either Judaismo or Judeo-Espanol. Um, some of the speakers do call it Espanol, but it is quite a special variety of basically what stems from 15th century Spanish, but then has gotten, has evolved on its own, of course, and also mixed with Turkish, mixed with Greek, mixed with French because of some funky history in the 19th century that I'll get to, um, has taken a little bit from Arabic, and then of course has the influence from Hebrew, which um, Jews have always um, infused in languages they speak wherever they are to talk about ritual elements and things like that. Um, and then the, the first name I talked about, Ladino, is what I grew up understanding the language to be called. But that even refers to a different variety of this language, which is a syntactic calc um, of Hebrew, which means that um, for a long time, so totally separate from the spoken language that I'm interested in, there has been a written language whereby Jews from the Spanish-speaking world, the Iberian Peninsula, um, translated Hebrew liturgical texts directly into Spanish, preserving the syntax of Hebrew. So you can imagine what that looks like. And that continues to exist, but actually doesn't have, a, there's no one-to-one -one relationship between the spoken language, which looks a lot syntactically more like Spanish, and this syntactic calc. Um, so growing up in my synagogue um, back home in Washington, DC, we would learn a couple uh, Ladino songs, um, maybe bits of prayers in what is I now know to be Judeo-Spanish, um, but not a lot about the language. I really grew up learning that Yiddish was a major Jewish language that I should know about um, besides Hebrew, but I didn't know that there was this just immense diversity um, of Sephardic varieties and dialects and that the language was so rich and so spread across the world. So it's been really exciting to sort of connect with a language that Jewish people other places in the world and even back at home speak and have been speaking for 500 years. Wow. Yeah. A lot of languages involved in this language, yeah. it seems. <laughs> it's a bit meta. Um, it's a box of languages. So this helps me hone in on the dialect that the variety that I work on, which perfect. is the variety of Istanbul. Um, so as I said, the Sultan, the Ottoman Sultan invite Jews um, invites Jews to go to the Ottoman Empire um, and they sort of spread across the Ottoman Empire, which was massive at the time, but then kind of eventually like um, tend to gather in Istanbul and a couple other cities in what is now Turkey, but like a really large concentration of Jews in Istanbul. Um, and there, the Jewish communities of Istanbul were fairly kind of insular, um, set up around synagogues. Um, they didn't actually speak Turkish for quite a long time. They were Judeo-Spanish was the language of their lives. Um, and then in around, uh, around 1860s, um, a network of French Jews called the Alliance Israelite Universelle, the Universal um, Israelite Alliance, um, sets up schools across um, sort of the Levant, the Middle East, um, Iran, basically parts of the Jewish world that were considered Oriental. Eastern at the time, and by extension, um, and through the lens of imperialism, were considered uncivilized and needing of integration into Western European linguistic and cultural norms. Um, so this is sort of like dynamic within the Jewish world of imperialism um, imposed upon Jews of the Eastern Mediterranean. And what that looked like was a network of schools meant for Jews that um, not only had their own their sole language of instruction as French, 
um, but also would explicitly discourage the use of Jewish languages like Judeo-Spanish, like Hecatea, like Judeo-Persian, like Judeo-Arabic. Um, they would take out, there's sort of full page ads in the Istanbul newspapers saying things to the extent, to the, to the, to the in the likes of um, stop speaking Ladino, it's not a real language, like speak French. Um, an interesting sort of imposition that was then echoed in later in 1923 by the Turkish Republic, which was saying, stop speaking Ladino, French isn't even that great either, citizens speak Turkish. So there's all, kind of all these layers um, in the lives of Istanbulite and sort of Sephardic Jews of the former Ottoman Empire in particular, um, in which they're told that their language is not viable, yeah. that um, it's not legitimate, that it's not civilized, that it's not Jewish, um, even though French is hardly a Jewish language. But for many people, they did. There were just generations of Jews that um, in Istanbul that were equally proficient in French, Turkish, and Ladino. And many of them have adopted sort of all of those languages part of their, their daily lives. Uh, many of the speakers that I met and um, whose kind of speech I work with um, view French as one of the languages of, of their family. So it's a complicated relationship. Um, but when they are, when they do speak Ladino, um, lots of interesting sort of French elements enter as well as Turkish. It's kind of amazing that this language has persisted despite so many like oppressive forces trying to get it to die out, right? But like, nevertheless, it's still around, which is amazing. And um, are the different dialects spoken throughout the world mutually intelligible at this point or are they too distant? There's kind of been a second layer of diaspora, you could say, or um, um, from places in which Judeo-Spanish developed as a language. Um, so sort of if it developed in the areas where Jews fled Spain. Um, it has now continued to evolve in um, North America, um, in the state of Israel, which has the largest number of Latino speakers, where um, there it's also discouraged because the use of modern Hebrew um, is considered um, preferable um, under the specific nationalism of that country. And um, so it, they've like, they've received so much contact with other languages. Also, there's amazing papers and projects in the US on the interaction, you'll love this, the interaction between um, Sephardic Jews who speak Latino and speakers of like Latin American Spanish in the in New York and in uh, in Los Angeles. Um, so there's contact between like two different varieties of Spanish, one of which sounds much older. Um, and the question of whether they're mutually intelligible is a good one. Um, that depends on who's speaking, sort of how much, um, how many borrowings they're letting in, how much contact they're letting in from all the sort of languages I've referred to. Um, and the sort of, the sort of, so the Turkish borrowings that have entered in um, the Ladino of Turkey and the Judea and the Moroccan Arabic borrowings that have entered into the Haketia of Morocco, those of course would not translate so well. Right. Um, but what I'm finding in my research is that there's, after 500 years, there's shockingly little um, imported into the language from Turkish and French that we would, sort of contrary to what we would expect. So there's a healthy number of lexical borrowings for um, borrowed words for things you might expect, like um, the Turkish military service and identity card and sort of objects around the house. Sure. Um, but there's very little structural borrowing that would make it really difficult to in understand the language for a speaker of another variety on sort of a structural level. Wow. Um, so I would say ha 
tentatively, yes. Um, and that's what sort of makes Sephardic communities in the second layer of diaspora let's talk about the ones in North America, for example, that's what makes them sort of able to be coherent because they might speak different varieties of Judeo-Spanish, but um, they're mostly intelligible and they do sort of forge a common identity. Okay, so let's focus on the specific dialect that you've been looking at yeah. for your thesis. So this is based in Istanbul? The Istanbul variety, okay. yeah. And then elsewhere throughout Turkey as well, or is it based solely in um, Istanbul? There's kind of two other major sites okay. uh, in Izmir and Edirne, another another city, but um, the Istanbul variety definitely has the most speakers. Um, if you're going to ask me how many, it's that we don't know, and a lot of the estimates are um, considered potentially too high because the younger generation simply aren't learning the language anymore. Uh -huh. um, so although we might have between 10 and 15,000 Jews in Istanbul right now. Um, if you ask how many people are fluent speakers of Istanbul Judeo-Spanish, it might be in the low thousands. Um, it might wow. also be in the hundreds. So we're not, it's really hard to estimate. But almost certainly not a first language for anyone living in Istanbul. For the younger generation now, um, it would be rare for it to be one of the mother tongues, um, but for sort of the um, middle age and older generation, it might be one among three um, or two mother tongues, but there are no monolingual speakers of Istanbul Judeo-Spanish. Um, and that has sort of been the case um, for a couple generations now. So everyone also speaks Turkish fluently. Um, most Sephardic Jews, uh, young Sephardic Jews, to my understanding, would call Turkish their first language. Um, but in the corpus that I work with, which are the the folks who are in their 80s and 90s and who are native speakers of Istanbul Judeo-Spanish, they consider Istanbul Judeo-Spanish their mother tongue, and then Turkish and French were kind of additional native languages. So given the fact that it's no one is a monolingual speaker anymore, um, I'm gonna throw a term out that is ill-defined, but would one call Judeo-Spanish an endangered language, a dying language? One of the sort of reference texts on Judeo-Spanish, at least in English, um, is titled, I think quite boldly, um, Death of a Language, uh, colon, like <laughs> Ladino. Okay, so. um, and that was published in 1994, um, which is, you know, 20, oh, 25 yeah, 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 years yeah. ago. Um, and that predicted that the language had a couple years to live, basically, hmm. or maybe a decade. Um, and I think, so I'll, I think the idea of a dead and dying language is, is it, it's a bit difficult for sort of linguists who aren't part of a community to impose as terminology on a community. There are even um, sort of the, the Miami nation um, in the United States um, had what was, was called by others a dead language. Um, and then um, through a process of Miami led reclamation um, brought it back. And then the leaders of that project proposed that the language should be retroactively called a dormant language. So the question of whether a language um, can truly die is a question um, because it is up to um, speakers to potentially revitalize it. And that can happen at various points in the future. Whether, so Istanbul Judeo-Spanish is most certainly not a dead language if we're defining that as a language without any native speakers. Um, the major sort of property we look at when we think about endangerment is um, what the younger generation is doing. And it just is the case that the younger generation isn't learning um, the language natively. There's a lot of factors going into that. And that kind of all started in 1923 when um, Turkish was uh, mandated the, the language of all schools 
in Turkey. This was at the dawn of the founding of the Republic of Turkey. Um, and the Sephardic Jewish community now had to have schooling um, in in Turkish. And as I said, like some of it was also happening in French. And so Istanbul Judeo-Spanish lost one of its major contexts, which was sort of the educational realm. And then the other major realm, which is the home, has also been declining because of feelings that um, it's not the language of the, the, the state they're living in, the nation they're living in. Um, and there is, however, a growing awareness, I think right now, um, that the language is on the verge of not having young speakers mm. um, and that the older speakers are aging. And so the organization called the Ottoman Turkish Sephardic Cultural Research Center, which is totally fantastic and run by amazing native speakers of the language in Istanbul, are starting all these really interesting projects um, that are quite innovative and aimed at the younger generation to make sure that young people are learning to speak it. And some of these are pretty creative. They're like international WhatsApp groups with like hundreds of people who may or may not be Sephardic, um, who are getting daily lessons through WhatsApp, through audio messages, through interesting graphics that teach them the grammar, teach them expressions. Um, there's sort of the, the publication of children's books and comics. Um, Judeo-Spanish has this amazing tradition of funny stories and proverbs that are kind of like asking to be read by, by children um, and, and parents and families. Um, so they have a lot of sort of tools at their dispense. Um, I think death of the language was a, sort of a, a prescient and, and quite negative um, like painting of the linguistic situation. Um, and I think there is a lot of hope, I think. Um, I think there's even just more talk generally about the sort of value of minority languages and why we should keep them around. Wow, that's great. Okay, so there are revitalization efforts currently undergoing. That's great. Is it taught in schools yeah. or? It's it's um, it's not taught in schools, but there are there are there are these sort of lessons put on by um, the organization that I mentioned. Uh -huh. They have a they publish a, a weekly newspaper, and then back in the states, even sort of away from you know where the language evolved. Um, there are projects um, run by Sephardic folks to make sure the language is celebrated and taught. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would say that these projects are are accelerating um, and that there's a growing awareness. Right. That's wonderful. So Judeo-Spanish, well, death of a language definitely was a little bit uh, presumptory. Yeah, like, <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Oof. Just incorrect, though, also, right? And, like, this is such a hopeful language. I think that's great. Yeah, and I think... so. My thesis is kind of, was kind of looking at um, whether, you know, this language has imported um, so much from Turkish and French and whether uh, that, that it, you know, might have lost quite a bit structurally, mm -hmm. syntactically, morphologically, um, and or whether it has sort of, whether its systems are intact. And so what I looked at is how, what the language does when it borrows from Turkish and French, which are kind of the major, like, source donor languages, we can say. And what I'm finding and what I found is that Judeo-Spanish grammatical systems are sort of so intact that they um, nearly consistently uh, integrate, as we say, um, Turkish and French borrowings um, on lots of counts. So nouns from Turkish, which don't have grammatical gender, get assigned gender based on very specific rules in Judeo-Spanish. Verbs um, from Turkish get like bunged right into a Judeo-Spanish verb paradigm, no questions. So like 
a Turkish verb like kulanmak to make use of becomes kulanayar. So someone can say like a guy is talking about like some like clothes he got for his bar mitzvah, I think. And he was like, los chamesilicos años y años los kulanemos, which means, which used like two Turkish borrowings. He's saying like those little clothes, like we use them for years and years. And he used like two Turkish borrowings, but he put like the Judeo-Spanish diminutive, diminutive suffix chamashirikos, the little clothes, okay. and then he took a Turkish verb, kulanayar, and made it into a Judeo-Spanish verb that has like very recognizably Judeo-Spanish morphology. Wow. So although like the language is sort of in contact all the time and receiving influences from other languages, it's also very much still Judeo-Spanish yeah, um, systematically. Like kind of a strong language that's like being able to like fight all of these different people. Yeah, and yeah, and I don't think, yeah, and I think like yeah, language contact is never really about like, yeah, competition between two languages until the question of power comes in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what you have to look at is sort of the sociolinguistic mm -hmm. situation whereby like, yeah, one language is the majority language of the state that has particular policies, um, trying to increase sort of its, its speakership, if you will. And this other minority language is a sort of um, in, a, in a minority community that is, yeah, that... Um, is not is not powerful in the same way um so the, at that point it does become a bit of a, a competition in li the linguistic landscape yeah. and yeah what we're seeing is that like people are multilingual that the language is adapting grammatically um and that it's also like very much um adapting on its own terms that's wonderful so it's it must be hopeful to see a language so closely that is kind of bouncing back all of a sudden and being persistent. Um, but as both of us know, that's not the case with all languages. Uh, language endangerment goes beyond um, revitalization. Sometimes there's, well, you know more about this than I do. So I'll ask you, um, for our audience, can you answer the question like, what does it mean? What does it matter if a language dies? I think a lot of people might respond to a topic of language endangerment as, okay, well, they're speaking something else, so what's the big deal? But what is lost when a language is lost? So there are kind of two major answers. And one um, is what a linguist would say. Mm -hmm. um, a linguist who might not particularly yeah, be in touch with a speaker community from a very, like a purely linguistic standpoint you know, we can say every language has its own unique um, phonological, uh, syntactic, morphological systems um, that by definition of being a language works differently from all the other ones, might encode um, different patterns and information that we can learn from, um, even lexically, even in terms of the vocabulary, might have words that we might lose. That's a quite sort of um, functional view of languages, right? And I think it has some validity, but then, um, on the other hand, and something that sort of uh, is more powerful, more compelling to me, um, is that language is part of a nexus of factors that make up the identity of a community. Mm -hmm. And when a language isn't doing well, when a language is being minoritized, there is no situation in which the community of speakers is not also being minoritized, stigmatized, or oppressed in another way. That might be politically, that might be socioeconomically, um, that might be in terms of loss of land, um, that might be uh, in terms of forced migration. It could be an extreme case such as war or genocide. Um, that's one of the major ways that languages are wiped out, but it also could be sort of an incremental um, 
an incremental push of um, loss of economic opportunity um, because the government of their of the, of the community they're in isn't prioritizing um, sort of policies to make sure that their region is economically viable. Um, there also is, of course, cases of colonization and then neo-colonialism. Um, and so what we're seeing when a language is is dying or becoming endangered is often the endangerment of a people uh, and the endangerment of a community. And speakers who are fighting for the vitality of their language are almost never just fighting for the vitality of their language. And they're quite explicit about that. So many revitalization movements are part of wider movements for political autonomy, for autonomy over land, resources. Um, so when we say, you know, what does it matter if a language dies, we're, we're actually, we're talking about their people. A language doesn't exist without speakers, right? Um, so if we're concerned about a language, we're concerned about the community. And that also means that when we as linguists work with community, we can't be working in a sort of linguistic vacuum um, where we're hoping to just make sure the data lives on. We need to also be making sure the people are, are empowered and healthy and um, given the autonomy that they're asking for. Yeah. So what can people in academia do to... Um prevent language death and yeah. all of the horrible consequences that come with it. Yeah, so I think number one, um, you, you listen, right? So there's lots of different ways that I can make a list of ways that linguists have in the past um, worked on language revitalization or reclamation and, and contributed to it. Um, but that doesn't mean that every, that every linguist should do all of those things for every community that um, has an endangered language. So. I'd say the, the first thing is that it's a process of consultation by which a community asks a linguist to be involved. And then revitalization will look different for every community based on sort of, um, are, they, are they fragmented across a large area? Are they quite insular? Um, what are sort of, what are, what's the situation in terms of um, technology? What's the situation in terms of the political si situation or education um, in that community? What are the channels by which revitalization can happen? And this is kind of why I got into linguistics in the first place. Um, I was doing archaeology for the extent of my undergrad and seeing that um, there, there weren't amazing relationships, <laughs> this is an understatement, between communities um, working with archaeologists, uh, not in all cases, but in many cases, there wasn't sort of a two-way street by which a community working with an archaeologist um, was able to benefit from that work. Often, the archaeologists would do their work and go away. Mm -hmm. um, and there might be some sort of consultation or talking, but ultimately. And what I, what I saw um, when I took my first uh, language documentation course was that we sat down with a native speaker, talked through um, what might make sense to do with the, what might make sense with the audio data we had collected on her language. What would she, what would make sense for the sort of folks back home? It was a community in Eastern Turkey. And she thought a children's book might make a lot of sense um, because the language was becoming endangered. And the process of working on that children's book really showed me that um, that what a, a linguist can do with a certain set of skills um, can be in full collaboration um, with members of endangered speaker communities. So that might be resource development for teaching. Um, that might be political lobbying. That might be... Um, uh, other projects on the ground um, that 
mostly have to do again with the younger generation. Lots of good ideas for people who are in linguistics or in any kind of academic setting. Um, what about for those who have kind of no background in linguistics whatsoever, like someone who is listening right now and has never heard about dying languages, but now wants to do something about it? What would you tell them so that they could get involved? Yeah. Um, so the first thing you can do is everyone is born somewhere. Everyone's living somewhere right now where you are living or where you are born, depending on where you are in the world was likely the site of another language in the past, um, particularly if you're in the Americas. There is a fantastic uh, language map of the Americas that shows you um, approximately where, of course, because there's about 10,000 years of linguistic history that's hard to represent, but at some point, um, what languages were spoken on the land in which you live and the land, the land maybe where you work and the land where you went to university and the land where you were born. I would highly suggest looking all of those up, learning their names, um, potentially researching a bit more about one of them. And if they happen to have a revitalization effort going on, like for example, there's quite a few immersion schools in um, the Native American nations across the United States, as well as also what is now Canada, same for South America. You could, do, you could make a donation to one of those right now. Um, you could read some of their resources. Sometimes they're called language nests. Um, here in Europe, um, there, we're sitting right here in, uh, in the UK where Celtic languages um, such as Gaelic um, and Cornish, which is doing even worse, um, were once spoken on these lands. And um, if you're sitting here and you're not a linguist and you're wondering how you can help, you can sort of look up the revitalization projects right here in the UK. That's wonderful. Great news for everyone who is obviously going to be so interested in what you have to yes, say. Yes, I'm sure. No question. People are already Googling as we're talking. Um, okay, wait. In Wales, a, like part of the language activism in the 60s was like scratching out all scratching out all the street signs, but then also like refusing to pay taxes until um, the tax forms themselves were translated into Welsh and it worked. Wow. So might want to get Good might want to get involved tactics. yeah you don't yeah. have to pay your taxes it's great so fun <laughs> <laughs> um so my final question is personal but not too personal what is in the future for you so you're approaching the end of this two-year master's yeah. congratulations turning in the thesis very soon uh-huh um and <laughs> what comes after maybe who knows yeah so i'll be relocating right here um to cambridge the site of much interesting linguistic research and work. Uh -huh. um, Cambridge has a bunch of wonderful professors involved in language, minority languages and standardization who I might love to work with. Otherwise, um, I'm really also interested in the public education side of things. Um, so that means involvement mostly in, in museums um, and making sure that museum exhibits are reflective of things like um, issues in endangered language and endangered cultured heritage. Um, so that could be really interesting and Cambridge is a pretty good place for that, so. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. This Thank was you. fascinating. I thought I knew everything about this subject and turns out I knew about 20% of it, so. You um, didn't know about Istanbul Judeo-Spanish? Uh, not everything. I knew about the French, but not, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't know anything. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for coming and I'm sure people are gonna be fascinated by what you had to say. Gracias.